Good morning, Covenant Fellowship. It is so good to be here with you this morning. Uh, it's just a bless, blessing to be here. I've missed drums. We don't have drums yet, so it's really nice to feel that rhythm and that beat. So thank you, JT, for, for that drum set. And I also love that you read Psalm 27. That is one of my favorites. That was a blessing as well. Well, I wanted to take a few minutes before we dive into our passage this morning and give you an update about how things are going at Valley Creek Church uh, in Malvern. The last time we were with you, uh, Happy and I and many members of our church, was September 25th of last year when you sent us off to start this new church in Malvern, Pennsylvania. And it does feel good to be back here, though it is weird. This is my first time not at Valley Creek on a Sunday morning since we launched. So uh, it's weird to not be there, but... We have officially been a church now for eight months, and yep. <laughs> and I can't even begin, you know, four or five minutes doesn't give enough time to really capture all that God's been doing and all that God has done. I'm sure you've heard some of the updates, but I do want to take the opportunity to let you know a little bit about what God has been up to. There are two things that have become very clear to me over this process of starting Valley Creek, both in preparation. And since we launched, one of those being that God prepared us for this work. He prepared Malvern and the surrounding area for us coming. The number of people who have come and visited the church and shared that they have been desperately looking for a church that preaches the gospel, that sticks to God's word, amazes me. We've only had one Sunday so far since we've started where there hasn't been at least one brand new face with us that Sunday. We have had tons of visitors the people have expressed just their strong uh, excitement over what God is doing. This is a text uh, from one gal who has uh, attended with us the past few Sundays. She sent me a text message. She said, I, I didn't realize how much I was missing the church community until today. I will definitely come back again. I'm looking forward to building new relationships and growing my faith in Jesus. I feel so blessed that your church showed up across the street from me when I needed it the most. God is definitely doing something. Thank you again. And there are numerous stories like hers. And the second thing that's become clear is that the Lord uses the prayers of his people. The number of people who I have learned have been praying specifically that God would move in Malvern. And not just in Malvern, but in the very church building that we're now meeting in has astonished me. There have been so many people. One day I was out messing with the sign in front of our church and this Catholic priest walks by and he tells me that he had been praying for that church and that God would revive it. There have been numerous people who have showed up for service simply because they've noticed new life in the building and things going on. People have been praying and the town is taking notice. And to give you a little more amazing news of how God works, the church that we rented from, First Baptist Church of Malvern, began in 1833. The main part of the building was built in 1875 and it predated Malvern itself. Their church history is 190 years old. They remain faithful to the gospel and though over the last few decades they experienced decline to the point to where they were down to about 10 faithful members all over the age of 70 and mostly widows. They are some of my favorite people. I love them so much. This group of folks has been an absolute delight for me. Really, these ladies 
and the former members of First Baptist were an unexpected blessing and joy for me over the last year and a half as we prepared and now that we've, as we've launched. But they have been praying and they had been laboring and they had been desiring that this would remain a church. It had been 190 years in that location, 150 years in that building that they had been proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and they hated the thought of it not being a church anymore. So they hung on and these few faithful women over the last at least decade had been doing everything and they're in their mid-80s and they were tired but they continued to pray and they saw our coming as we got to know each other. They saw our coming as an answer to their prayers. So much so that it was decided that officially as of April 16th, this past April 16th, our two churches would merge in what was called an upmerger, which essentially means that we absorb them into our congregation. We assumed ownership of their property and all their remaining assets. Yeah. Their pastor had retired, they were without leadership, and they were praying that God would do something. And so as of April 16th, First Baptist Church of Malvern officially was no longer a congregation, and now we exist jointly as Valley Creek Church. It was literally a community-wide celebration because of their history. Even the mayor of Malvern was in attendance at our celebration. He gave a few words. Uh, we are excitedly wrapping our arms around their story really do believe we are now the oldest Sovereign Grace Church. We're 190 years old. So, <laughs> and if you stop by and visit us sometime, you'll see lots of artifacts throughout the building celebrating their history, ice cream receipts from socials in 1905, things like that. And none of this would have been accomplished had the Lord not used you all as a church and your faithfulness and your prayers and your willingness to send us out We've grown from our initial membership of 50 to now over 80. Our members and regular attenders email list is over 120 and we weekly have between 40 and 50 kids in our Valley Creek kids. The Lord has given us the resources also to be actively looking for a second full-time pastor. We are blown away. I wanted to show you a really quick one minute video that captures a bit of our church. I'm eager for you to see the town, the people, and our home. There's a lot of things you're going to see in this short video. Because of the people you sent with us and those that the Lord has since brought, we were able to start a lot of things up at, at the beginning and have a lot of things going on. So we have a very active children's ministry, a youth group. We now have four fellowship groups. We do adult education classes that we call Valley Creek U. We've done two of those this year so far. We just finished one. 25 people were in attendance at that. We continue to hold a Wednesday morning Bible study. That was a tradition of the First Baptist ladies. And so you'll see some of them in this video as well. And finally, uh, given this small town feel of the church, it's very towny. And so you'll see the, in, the video end with us walking in the Malvern Memorial Day parade this last week, uh, which was a joy as well. So let's watch. Isaiah 43 tells us that we were created for God's glory. We want to grow as a church together, not so that everyone looks and says, wow, things are really happening there at that church, but so that the whole earth would know that God alone is Lord. So that's why at Valley Creek, we're committed to spurring one another on in the Lord. 
committed to pursuing holiness together, committed to knowing God and his word. And ultimately we do this so that God would be glorified through us and bring others to himself for his glory and for their good. And church, we get to make this glory known. We are ambassadors for Christ. We have a glorious message we get to share. We have a great God we get to worship. And we stand together as the living temple of God, empowered by his Holy Spirit, so that we would worship, walk, and witness faithfully to Malvern, Great Valley, and beyond. That's a little snapshot of who we are. Unless you think we don't have our hiccups. The Sunday that, that the service was recorded that you saw there, one, I didn't know they were going to be doing that, so this guy's running up and down the aisle. And that was super distracting. And two, a bird had gotten into the sanctuary and we couldn't get it out. So that Sunday we had a bird like constantly circling around. I'm watching everyone's eyes as they're watching this bird. The guy's running up and down the aisle. So, you know, looks a little polished, but there was, there was some other stuff. Some other stuff there, but God has been kind to us. And I've been so excited to hear all that God's been doing among you and the ways that he's blessed you abundantly in your faithfulness to send us out. So with all of that, I now have the great privilege of reminding us this morning of why we do this. Why do we plant churches? Why do we gather together on a Sunday morning? As Sovereign Grace Churches, we say that we are gospel-centered. Well, just what does that mean? It means that though there are important things about God, many good things that we could do in his name, there is in fact only one thing that should be central to all that we do. All that we talk about and all that we think about when we worship our God. There's one thing that anchors us in truth. One thing that allows us to come before God. One thing that keeps us humble but always exalting that gives us strength but reminds us of our weakness. One thing that gives us hope when all hope seems lost. One thing that's certain when all else gives way. One thing we cling to, one thing that drives mission, one thing that, that leads us to plant churches, and it is the salvation that has been won for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. It is his death and resurrection, an earth-shattering historic event. So I want to take time this morning together to really soak in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Among all the world's religions and philosophies, Christianity is unique. It's unique for many reasons, but one of the most significant being the resurrection. Yes, it's true that ancient Religions of the Greeks and the Romans had depictions of rising and dying gods, but these stories were told not as claims on history, like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't have people who claim to have met Zeus in person. We don't have eyewitness accounts of Osiris' friends who knew him, let alone saw him rise again from the dead. And this is because these stories, these mythologies passed down and constructed by people were ways of making sense of their world. They were not early eyewitness testimonies recording the truth. There simply is no record of another resurrected Lord. Muhammad died. Buddha is not with us. 
Joseph Smith has gone to the grave and not a single one of them ever came back to claim that they had overcome death and would never die again. And that's true of every other spiritual leader who has ever walked this earth. And though some say that the resurrection claims only came about because these ancient people were superstitious and, and were open to the idea of a resurrection, that's simply not true either. Hear this quote from N.T. Wright speaking about others who claimed to be a Messiah in Jesus' day. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options. Give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option. Unless, of course, he was. Tim Keller, who recently passed in his excellent book, The Reason for God, says, When I was studying philosophy and religion in college, I was taught that the resurrection of Jesus was a major historical problem no matter how you looked at it. Most modern historians made the philosophical assumption that miracles simply can't happen. And that made the claim of the resurrection highly problematic. However, if you disbelieved the resurrection, you then had the difficulty of explaining how the Christian church got started. There are simply too many realities about the resurrection to ignore. Many of which we will discuss today. If you choose to believe that the resurrection of Christ did not take place, then you have the difficult task of coming up with an alternative explanation that makes sense of all the facts. A task that's not yet been done in any convincing kind of way and a task that will never be done because Jesus did rise from the grave. Keller says, nothing in history can be proven the way we can prove something in a laboratory. However... The resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact much more fully attested to than most other events of ancient history that we take for granted. It's because of the resurrection that you exist today as a church. Yet many still claim that the resurrection did not happen. Why? Because we're sinful. And we don't want to have to confront the reality of the resurrection. Because if Jesus really did rise from the grave, and he, then he really was who he said he was. And if he really was who he said he was, then that means there is a God who gets to call the shots. And if there's a God who calls the shots, then I don't. And that means that things in my life have to change. However, what I hope we will all be encouraged by this morning is the fact that not only is the resurrection one of the surest bits of recorded history that we have, but it is the greatest news that we could ever hear. It makes sense of our world and proclaims to us the hope that we so desperately need and so desperately long for. To help us understand that this morning, we're going to read one of my favorite passages about the resurrection... And it's not actually written in one of the Gospels, but was written by the Apostle Paul in his first known letter to the Corinthians. Now many claim that the Gospels were fabricated tales, that the resurrection of Jesus was a whisper down the lane scenario, that it was created centuries later just as 
the myths of Greece and Rome. Just as they were conceived, so too was the resurrection of Christ. However, that does not hold water. What we're about to read was written by Paul, most likely around A.D. 55. This is just 20 or so years after the death of Christ. The majority of critical scholars even acknowledge that Paul wrote this, and he wrote this around that time. This is before the Gospels themselves had likely been put to paper. And what I encourage you to do as we read is listen to this man. Like the claims of Christ, we have only a few options of what to do with what Paul says here. Because of his proximity to the time of Christ, because of the easily verifiable claims that he was making, Paul in this passage is either lying, he was out of his mind, or he truly was proclaiming the truth that Christ had raised from the dead. What we're about to read is not centuries-old tradition growing into fantastic myth. This is a man writing during the time of these events about things he himself saw so that others might know the truth. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read a little bit of an extended passage, 1 to 26. Um, we won't talk about everything in this passage, but we'll try to capture the main thrust here. Let me pray. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to understand your word. Thank you that we can come together this morning and receive your word. Thank you, Father, that you have made a way for us to be with you through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would use me now to speak truth. Lord, I pray that you would work and minister on all of our hearts. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead and that he gives us hope and victory in the cross. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. I love this passage. I love the sincerity, the conviction, and the clarity with which Paul speaks. Paul didn't always believe what he's saying here. Paul once was a persecutor of Christians. He sought to put them to death. He did not believe in the resurrection of the Lord. Yet Paul was one of the many who encountered the risen Christ and had his life radically transformed by him. From that point on, rather than persecuting Christians, Paul himself endured persecution for the sake of the message. But Paul doesn't proclaim this message simply because Jesus rose from the dead. Paul proclaims this message because he understands all the implications of it. Implications that gave Paul hope, not just in this life, but in eternity to come. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the one basket where Paul put all of his eggs. Paul knew that if he was wrong about this, then he was above all men to be pitied. He would be peddling falsehoods and speaking heresy. He would be clinging to a lie for hope. Yet Paul was so convinced that what he was saying is true, he was willing to go to his grave continuing to preach this good news. So we're going to follow Paul's argument here to help us all marvel at the resurrection of Christ. For some, I pray that for the first time you see its truth. And for others, I pray you feel afresh the wonder of the resurrection and the work that the Lord has done for you. The point of my message today is simple. Christ has been raised from the dead. We'll look at three things that Paul uses to affirm this for us. Things that don't allow us to simply cast the account of Christ's resurrection to the side. The reality of fulfilled prophecies. The reality of the eyewitnesses. And the reality of the unparalleled good news. First, fulfilled prophecies. As we've said, one of the things that's unique about the Bible is that it makes a lot of historical claims that could have easily been disproven in its day. This is because God knows that we need help trusting him. And in his grace, he's not only revealed himself to us, but revealed himself to us in a variety of ways and in different contexts. One of the ways that the Lord has spoken to us has been through prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy in the scriptures is one of the things that the skeptic must wrestle with. We see in the scriptures the Lord reveal his plans For the people of Israel to Abraham, we see him foretell famines and earthquakes. We see him foretell the coming of foreign nations and attack. He made known the name of a king yet to come, Cyrus. He spoke of some events very specifically down to the way in which they were going to be carried out. And the event most prophesied about throughout all of the scriptures is the coming of Jesus Christ. 
the timing of his arrival, the nature of his being, and the work that he was going to accomplish. So what does the skeptic do with all of these prophecies? Well, one of the most often employed method to explain them is to say that they were written after the fact. That's a simple way to sidestep the whole issue. However, there are problems with that. For one, claiming that books were written well after the date they were originally understood to have been written can open up many, many new problems for explaining aspects of their writing. It also levels the charge that all such accounts are the works of liars, purposefully deceiving and crafting falsehoods. If you read the scriptures, it's hard to swallow that pill. I've read a lot of false reports, and the things that we read in the scriptures do not strike me as the work of charlatans. This will be unconvincing to my skeptic friends, but I do encourage you to ponder if it sounds like this is the work of a trickster. But there's another issue with such claims. Many have been definitively proven to be false. Take, for instance, Isaiah 53. Many are familiar with this passage. It's beautiful, and it speaks of the work of our Lord and what he did for us on the cross. It reads, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. This is only part of that passage. And it is an astounding description of the death of Jesus Christ. But the problem is that it was written many centuries before him. Those critical of the claims of Christianity recognize that this passage bears an undeniable similarity to the events surrounding Christ's death. Which is why there were some scholars who claimed that this was a section of scripture that was inserted later, after Christ. A Christian addition to the scriptures. However, despite other reasons that such a claim is not valid, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found with Old Testament scriptures dating prior to the time of Christ, what passage was among them? Isaiah 53. And this is just one among many prophecies in the scriptures foretelling the coming of Christ. This is what Paul says in our passage. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. As a church, we're going through the gospel of Matthew. Matthew regularly reminds these things are happening just as it had been foretold. When the Lord opened Paul's eyes to the truth, he was able to see clearly how the death and resurrection of Christ, his life, and all that took place were foretold from the very first pages of the scriptures. This not only affirmed for Paul the trustworthiness of the scriptures, but it affirmed that Christ really was who he said he was. Fulfilled prophecy should have such an effect on us as well. After his resurrection, Christ made clear that the entirety of the scriptures testify about him. It was all written to point toward what he was going to do. 
In the Old Testament, we read where the Messiah would be born. We read of the nature of his birth. We read what family he'd be born into. We read of the nature of his ministry. We read about his betrayal. We read about the experiences that he would have in crucifixion, which was a method of of execution that didn't even exist at the time it was written about. We read about how we'd be buried and the list could go on. Some estimates show that there are as many as 50 very specific prophecies that were fulfilled by Christ, not counting the innumerable other prophetic themes he walked out. One study showed that the likelihood of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That is akin to taking... One to the 17th silver dollars, which is enough to cover the entire surface of Texas up to two inches thick. Marking one of those silver dollars with a mark and randomly picking that coin out on your first try. It's essentially impossible. And that's just eight of them. If you up that to account for all of the prophecies, we're talking more about one out of ten to the 157th probability. Utterly improbable, yet it happened. The only reason to deny that these prophecies were fulfilled or the only reason to claim it was coincidence comes from a prior commitment to rejecting claims of the miraculous. But if God is real and exists, then nothing is impossible for him. He knows the end from the beginning and so there is nothing improbable about him having revealed beforehand his plans for the coming Messiah and the great salvation that he would secure for the world. Christ came just as the scriptures revealed. God kept his promises to us. And his coming was not in private. He didn't do it in some metaphysical realm or some vision that one single person had. He did it in time and space in front of hordes of people So that we might know that Jesus really is the Christ. So we touched on the fulfilled prophecies. Let's look now at the eyewitnesses. Paul says, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Yet again, we come a up against something that makes Christianity unique. Its central claims have always been backed up by public displays of God's power to verify his message and his messengers. This is very different than other religions. Take Buddhism, for example. Siddhartha Gautama was born around 563 BC, and as a youth, he went on a spiritual quest to understand the world. Legend has it that he took a series of four chariot rides, all of which revealed to him the suffering of the world. And after his series of endeavors, he finally sat down under a tree to meditate and achieved enlightenment. He received, he, received, he said, the true answers to the causes of suffering and how to achieve permanent release from it. From this then, he began to teach and Buddhism began to take place. Or consider Islam. At the age of 40, Muhammad, it is said, started to experience private visions and hear revelations. He soon realized that he'd been chosen to preach to his own tribe about the one true God. 
Or take Mormonism. In 1820, 14-year-old Joseph Smith sought solitude in a grove of trees, prayed to know which church was true. He then reported that God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared, spoke to him, revealing to him the truth. This private vision, along with some hundred other private visions, compromised the basis of the Mormon faith. These religions began with private revelation made to individuals. We see something very different in the scriptures. And certainly so when we get to the death and resurrection of Christ. Yes, there are many private revelations in the scriptures, but they are very often accompanied with fantastic signs and affirmations to a broader group of people. Take Moses as one example. It'd be one thing for Moses to say that God had spoken to him. It's another for him to say that and then display the power of God with repeated sign after sign culminating in the Exodus where God parted a large body of water. It'd be one thing for him to go up on a mountain and say that God gave him the Ten Commandments. Entirely another that all the while he's up on that mountain, it's engulfed in fire and smoke that all the entirety of Israel can see. God's presence visibly descended on the temple, proving to the people that God was with them. Public miracles occurred around the Ark of the Covenant. Prophets would work wonders before the people as they spoke and made known what God was revealing. Prophecy after prophecy was fulfilled over time, validating the messages that the messengers were giving. And when it comes to Jesus Christ, it was no private revelation or private resurrection. Not only was Christ's birth accompanied with angels appearing to individuals and groups. Not only was his baptism accompanied by the audible voice of God heard by those in attendance. Not only was his life full of miracle after miracle done in front of crowds of all shapes and sizes. Not only was his death a public and seen event, but his resurrection likewise was attested to publicly. This is an amazing list presented of all those who Christ appeared to. The biggest group being 500 people at once. And not only that, but the record we have of the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb and his resurrection are women. This was an unthinkable move in the ancient world who discredited the testimony of women. Yet the scriptures boldly proclaim that it was a group of women who saw him first. Why would they do this? Well, because it's true. And then there's Paul. Paul, who once persecuted Christians, would himself go to his death holding to his testimony that the risen Lord appeared to him as well. It would make no sense whatsoever for any of the apostles to go to their death claiming the resurrection when they so easily could have known that what they were saying was untrue. People might die for something they don't realize is false, but it takes a very bullheaded person to die for a known lie. Do not be fooled. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact of history. Paul makes clear most of whom are still alive when he lists those who saw Christ. He's saying, don't believe me? Go and ask. He's inviting the challenge. And this is true for all the gospel accounts. It would have been so easy to discredit these things. These people were still living when this was written, yet this story persisted, and it persisted under great persecution, and it grew at such a rate that secular historians still struggle to explain how this small religious 
sect could grow with such speed and a culture completely opposed to it. We've never seen something like that in the history of the world. The explosion and growth of Christianity. Nothing else has taken place. This can only, it can only happen if the stories were true. If the tomb were not actually empty, this explosive growth couldn't have occurred because anybody could have easily seen, hey, look, this isn't true. Jesus' body is right here. But the tomb was empty. We're told in the book of Matthew that to try and cover over his missing body, the authorities claimed his body was stolen. But this also doesn't work. As we've said, the disciples went to their grave claiming he was alive, but they would have been the ones to steal the body. And that, again, doesn't even account for his appearances to hordes of crowds and various individuals after the resurrection. The only reasonable explanation is that the grave was empty and that he rose from the dead. The eyewitnesses are not lying. This book is not a myth, but is intended to record the truth. The scriptures have been scrutinized by people over the ages. And many who try to discredit them wind up submitting to them when they realize their power and their truth. The level of accuracy of historical record in the scriptures is unparalleled. The number of points of outside verification of events is significant. One cannot claim that these were intended to be myths. History shows these accounts weren't written long after Christ. As we said, most critical scholars acknowledge Paul wrote this letter just a few decades after Christ's resurrection. And Paul here lays out for us already the core of Christian belief, the resurrection. Far from the resurrection developing over time, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins and that he was raised on the third day. You don't even need the Gospels to hear about the resurrection of Jesus. It's right there in Paul's letter. We need them. I'm not saying that. <laughs> Christianity didn't start with a good teacher being slowly immortalized by his followers over the ages. No, Christianity started with a miracle-working prophet who claimed to be the Son of God, one with God himself, being crucified and then rising from the dead. Christianity can only exist if the tomb was empty and the Lord was risen. Christianity rises and falls with the death and resurrection of Christ. If Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. I like how Tim Keller puts it. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. As I prepared for this message, I felt fresh excitement over the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not just because it's history. Not just because it's a miracle, but because of what it means for us. Which leads us to the last reality. We have to confront the, the prophecies, the witnesses, and now the unparalleled good news. Keller again writes, each year at Easter I get to preach the resurrection. In my sermon I always say to my skeptical secular friends that even if they can't believe in the resurrection, they should want it to be true. Keller and... Conversely, me right now are not saying we should believe something just because we want it to be true. 
But what he's saying is that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so amazing, speaks so directly to the issues that we all face, that even if it weren't true, which it is, we should want it to be true. For many years, I devoted unhealthy amounts of time to apologetics, which is the defense of the faith, and specifically what we call classical apologetics, trying to prove Christianity by facts and data. Now, there's nothing wrong with facts and data. Paul uses it here. He says, look at the fulfilled prophecies. Go talk to the witnesses. You're not taking a blind step of faith here. These things are true. However, the reality is we can always rationalize things no matter how far we have to stretch to do so. We can always come up with new objections and questions. We're very good at that as humans. All of us, whether we acknowledge it or not, live by faith in this life. This is as true for the atheist as it is for the Christian. The atheist cannot prove that the world is all there is. The atheist cannot prove that reason is even a reasonable thing. In fact, an atheist cannot reasonably assert that reason exists at all in a world of chaos. None of us are God. None of us know all things. Thus, we're all given a world full of evidence, and we have to decide, do we believe in and put our trust in the maker? Or do we put our trust in something else? And so facts and proofs and data are great. But because all of us being human are sinful and in our pride we seek to reject our God, it takes more than data to overcome our objections. Many people saw Christ perform his miracles but didn't believe in him. Demons know Christ exists yet they reject him. In order for us to truly embrace the resurrection of Christ, we need, by the grace of God, the ability to see the beauty of what Christ has done for us. And it's not just a belief about something, but a trusting belief in something. Paul was not excited about the resurrection just because it happened, like some cheap parlor trick. He was excited about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they were the source of all of his hope and his joy. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Though God created the world good, when Adam and Eve took the fruit of the tree, sin entered the world. This sin not only brought about pain and death, but it brought about a great divide between us and our God. The old saying goes, there's only two things certain in this world, death and taxes. But we know for certain one of those things was not supposed to exist. Now, I'm not sure how the Lord feels about taxes, but death was not the intent for humanity. But because of our sin, we experience death. Because of our sin, we've been separated from God and we have careened headlong into spiritual darkness. In the book of Romans, we read, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul understands that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that great historic event we just spoke of, proclaims that one day, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's why the end of Psalm 27 that we read today, I believe I shall look upon the Lord in the land of the living. It's because of what Jesus Christ has done. 
If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've believed that in fact he has been raised from the dead, if you've repented of your sins and turned to him as your Lord and Savior, then you have been given a hope that exceeds anything that's ever been promised in this world. Through Jesus Christ, your sins, all of them, large and small, were paid for on the cross. Jesus didn't deserve to die. He never sinned, but he died on our behalf. And in doing so, he made a way for us to be with God again. And then it's not only that we'll be with him in spirit in this age. No, we have an eternal hope. An eternal existence to look forward to forever delighting in and enjoying the eternal God of the universe. The greatest thing, the greatest one that's ever existed. One who in his right hand he keeps pleasures forevermore. And this eternal existence won't just be us floating around in some clouds playing harps. No, the resurrection shows us that this eternal existence will be embodied. It will be like this life, only 10 to the 157th power better. When the body of Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he proclaimed that our bodies one day too will rise. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Jesus rose from the dead, he declared that the grave had no power over him. He never died again. He rose into the heavens, yet another public display right in front of all of his followers. And he will never die. And because of that, we're told that one day we will have resurrected bodies with him. We'll all face death in this life unless the Lord returns. But if we've trusted in Christ, we will one day arise with him once again in perfected bodies never to die again. I saw an interview a while back with actor Rob Lowe and his sons. The interviewer was seeing how well his sons knew him and had them all secretly write down answers to questions. He asked, if a genie gave Rob Lowe one wish, what would he wish for? Do you know what his answer was? Eternal life. Church, we don't need a genie to grant us that wish. It's been granted by God through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's not just that we'll live forever. But we will have perfected, sinless bodies which will exist in perfect, unending joy. Do you know what that means? We will never sin or be sinned against. All wars will cease. All pain will end. We will live forever without painful aches and pains or horrendous diagnoses. We will live forever without looking in the mirror, seeing the sad decay of death. We'll run and not grow weary. We'll work and not be faint. If you have a physical ailment right now, the resurrection says to you, this is only a light and momentary affliction. If you're facing death right now, the resurrection says to you, this is only a light and momentary affliction. If you're persecuted, if you're in a trial, if you're facing need and uncertainty, the resurrection says to you, this is only a light and momentary affliction. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Church, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. Hallelujah. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is risen. We can have all the facts and data in the world. 
But if we've not seen our great need for the salvation that Christ gives, and we've not tasted the sweetness of the salvation he offers us, then we'll never believe. If you're here and you've yet to call upon the name of the Lord, I encourage you to consider all the things you've heard today. I not only encourage you, but I challenge you. Yeah, I heard that. Today is the day of salvation. That's right. I challenge you to challenge your own assumptions and consider what if this were true? Because I guarantee you, you will find no greater hope. You know this world is broken. You know you long for something better. We all want to know where we came from. We all want to know what lies in the future. And none of us, when we are honest with ourselves, truly wants to die. Ideally, we would live forever in full health and fullness of joy. Well, I proclaim to you today that that can be real. And it's been made possible by this man, Jesus Christ. Whose death and resurrection took place in time and space... And they happen so that you might be saved. No amount of good work can get you into heaven. All you must do is ask Christ for forgiveness and then follow him. We have a glorious Savior. Jesus is real. Jesus is alive. And Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have graciously given us your son Jesus Christ we thank you Lord that though the heavens declare your glory that there should be no area in our heart that ever questions if you're real if you love us if you're good if you're God you know our weaknesses and you have given us ample proof and evidence of your reality and the reality of what your son Jesus Christ has done for us I pray for all of us that we would be spurred on by the resurrection of Jesus Christ today that we would be fearless in the face of whatever may come, that we would be bold in our proclamation of this truth, that people would be saved and people would come to know who you are and that your kingdom would go forth. Thank you, Father, for meeting us today through your word. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.